I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Merisham. Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Gary, Max, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the program, we're going to be joined by one of the world's most preeminent Holocaust and Genocide Studies scholars from Brown University, Dr. Omer Bartoff. We'll be discussing the question of genocide in relation to the Gaza War, both when it comes to the October 7th Hamas attack and the Israeli bombardment of Gaza. We'll also discuss the occupation and its effect on both the occupied and the occupier. The misuse of Holocaust memory and the recent letter Dr. Bartov and other scholars signed in regards to that issue. The Jewish parable of the Golem of Prague and how it can be applied to the problem of the violent settler movement in Israel and much, much more. So with all that in mind, let's get right to it with Dr. Omar Bartov. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very happy to speak with. Uh, He's been doing a lot of media appearances lately, so I really appreciate him uh, making time to come on my show. Uh, Professor Omar Bartov, who specializes in Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Brown University, uh, how are you doing? I, I hate asking that question because it seems like such a difficult time for everyone right now. But, uh, you know, all things aside, how are you doing, uh, Professor Bartov? Uh, well, considering the circumstances, I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> the first thing I wanted to ask you uh, was maybe to discuss what your exact views are on both what happened on October 7th and what has happened since then with the bombing of Gaza. Because to be honest, I've seen some publications, not just people on social media, but publications like Colette uh, argue that you're saying uh, a genocide is happening right now. And all the interviews I've seen with you, you aren't really saying that. So I I want you to be able to clear up misconceptions people may have about your analysis. Yeah, one one always hopes that uh, one would be read uh, carefully, uh, but that doesn't always happen. So people see, you know, whatever they want to see. Um, look, I mean, my own view is that what happened on October seventh was clearly a a horrendous, atrocious attack. Uh, it could easily feature as a war crime and a crime against humanity. 
uh, by Hamas. Uh, there is a larger context to this, but that, first of all, has to be said. Uh, and Israel, as a state, uh, had the right, in fact, had the duty to respond to it. Uh, the question is, A, how did it respond? And B, what are its goals in responding? Or what are its larger goals? So it responded with the bombing attack followed by ground attack. Today, we've finally seen a first pause in the fighting. But I suspect the fighting will continue uh, within a few days. And in that attack, um, there was a very substantial uh, uh, bombing of Gaza, first of all, of North Gaza, and then also of uh, southern parts of Gaza, Rafa in the south. Um, and that appears to have caused very large civilian casualties. Uh, the figures are obviously can't be entirely determined. They may be higher and they may be lower than what we're hearing because there are also probably a lot of people buried under the rubble. Uh, but it could be 14,000, 15,000 uh, civilians of whom a very high percentage of children because 50% of the population of Gaza is under 18 years old. Um, that... Uh, huge amount of destruction is one thing to take into account. Uh, secondly, uh, the Israeli army um, claiming that it was doing that for humanitarian reasons um, asked, it appears by now, over a million and a half people to move from northern Gaza to southern Gaza, to the southern part of the Gaza Strip. Meanwhile, destroying much of the housing in the north. So you now have a high concentration of civilians in a very small area, lacking basic sanitation, clean water, and so forth, uh, which is likely, if there's no immediate massive intervention, to cause yet another humanitarian catastrophe with epidemics and so forth. So the question is, how, how do we think of all this? Uh, my own impression is that uh, one could, we don't have all the facts, obviously, but there would be good reasons for to investigate whether crimes, whether war crimes were um, committed by the IDF. And I suspect that uh, there would be good grounds for finding war crimes as well because of the extent of the deaths of civilians uh, also crimes against humanity. Whether this rises to uh, genocide is a complicated question. Uh, and I, I don't think it does at the moment, but I think we have been sort of on the verge of that now for a couple of weeks already. What do you make of the rhetoric coming out of certain parts of the Israeli political scene? Because I I noticed with um, Palestinian Americans that there's a lot of fear when someone like Netanyahu is making biblical references to Amalek and, uh, you know, this talk of there are no innocents. I believe that was said by President Isaac Herzog, uh, who is considered pretty moderate uh, compared to a Netanyahu. Um, is there reason to be concerned with this rhetoric that's being used? There's great reason to be concerned. Uh, there were statements, as you said, by the prime minister on the need to uh, destroy Gaza, on turning it to rubble, and then a reference to Amalek, which is a kind of uh, you know reference to a biblical phrase about a killing of men, women, children, and babies. Um, and statements by the minister of defense and all kind of other commentators and ministers to the extent that um, these could be seen as a genocide of statements. Um, so that's that's out there in the open. At the same time, uh, the army has been claiming that uh, it, it, it is trying to hit only military targets. However, that Hamas has stationed itself within highly congested areas, hospitals, schools, and therefore that there's a, a great deal 
um, of collateral damage, uh, but unintended uh, from the point of view of proportionality, it is such that, as I said before, uh, the killing of so many civilians does not seem to be justified uh, if you measure that against the goals that the army is trying to accomplish. Um, but with genocide, you need two elements. You need intention, uh, and at least there have been statements that indicate intention, and you need actual implementation of policy. And the question is whether uh, the Israeli forces are trying to destroy the Palestinian uh, population of Gaza as such. Uh, that is, that they're killing people not as individuals, but as members of a group, which is what you need to show in genocide. Um, so I think the case is out there. What makes me worry in particular right now is the population policies being put into place because there is growing rhetoric in Israel now about removing the population of Gaza from Gaza or not allowing people to go back to their homes, which in any case have been destroyed. That could amount to ethnic cleansing. And ethnic cleansing is is often the beginning of genocide. And even if it doesn't become genocide, it would be ethnic cleansing, that is, of moving the population out of the strip, uh, and where is not at all clear, right? Um, and so, you know, people like, people tend, not like, but tend to use the word genocide nowadays whenever they see something terrible happening. Uh, obviously, not all uh, horrendous crimes are genocide. War crimes, crimes against humanity are nothing uh, better or worse than genocide. Uh, genocide is a very particular crime. And um, I think that right now we are on the brink of it. I think people use that term because they are horrified by what they're seeing. Uh, but I in some ways, I think uh, spending too much time on that rhetoric may sort of divert our attention for what is actually happening on the ground, which is bad enough. I wanted to talk about this. I hope this isn't too much of a, a curveball question, but I recently had uh, the genocide scholar Dirk Moses on, and I, I know you've disagreed with uh, Professor Moses on some things, especially his writing on permanent security in some ways. Um, but do you think he has a point when he says that, you know, we genocide is considered the crime of crimes, but we also shouldn't use that to say, hey, let's not look at, you know, war crimes more generally. Do you think he has a point there? Yeah, I mean, of course, this is what I was saying now. Absolutely. Um, the uh, Dirk Moses's um, objection to using the term genocide is precisely because it has come to mean uh, anything we really don't like, anything we think is atrocious, we call genocide, and that is not in accordance with the definition. Now, you could say, uh, who is to say what is genocide? I, I'm looking at this footage, and I think it's genocide, and how can you tell me it isn't? And I, I get these sort of responses, you know. Is this bad enough for you now to say that it's genocide? But it's not a question of is it bad enough or not. It is bad enough. Uh, but um, genocide, if we accept the UN definition of it, is a very particular type of crime. Um, so Dick Moses thinks maybe we should not use that term at all. I don't agree on that. I agree that it's often abused, but I think it's good to have distinctions between terms so that we know what we're actually looking at and not only how we're feeling about it, which are two very different things. Could you speak uh, to the definition? You mentioned the UN definition of genocide. I, I think a lot of people are using this term genocide right now without even really knowing what it means specifically. So could you get into that and how it differs from maybe uh, other war crimes? Absolutely. It's actually a very peculiar type of uh, definition. So the Genocide Convention uh was voted on in the in the UN in 1948 and came into force in 1951 when it had enough uh, signatories and what it says is that uh, genocide 
is the, a crime which includes the intent to destroy a group, an ethical or, or national or religious group in whole or in part as such. And all these things are very important. So when you want to identify whether a particular series of crimes uh, committed by a state or an organization are genocide, you have to show first that there's an intent. It's not enough to show that these things are happening because they could be happening you know, in wartime, uh, but that there's a, a particular intent for those things to happen. And secondly, that what is happening is an attempt to destroy a group. So you're not killing people as individuals, but as members of a group. And that group is defined by the perpetrator. It's not how the group defines itself, it's how the perpetrator defines it. And that group, it could be an ethnic or a national or religious group. In the original definition, it was wider, but for various political reasons, uh, these were the categories. And that the group is being killed as such. Now, it's important to say that um, this qualification of uh, uh, in whole or in part could actually be extended to the extent that you might be uh, targeting a group for extinction without killing any of its members. Uh, that is, if you take away the children from a particular group, or you sterilize all the people in that group so that they cannot pro, um, you know, have children, uh, then you may end up destroying that group as a group, as a, a particular ethnic or religious group without uh, killing anyone. Usually, uh, this is not extended that much, but there is a potential in the definition of genocide that means it's not necessarily killing. Uh, because of this peculiarity of the of the resolution, uh, it is hard to identify cases of genocide because many regimes that carry out genocide don't say that they are. They say something else. And sometimes it's difficult to know whether they're killing people as members of a group or just because they are being very brutal toward any civilian population. Uh, but that's the, the constraints. It has one other very interesting aspect, which is that uh, unlike other UN resolutions, it does not actually respect sovereignty. So that means that signatories are supposed, if you, if you identify genocide as a state, then you have the right, uh, you in fact have the duty to do something about it. And what you may do might involve also intervention, that is to intervene in the affairs of a sovereign state, which the UN generally does not approve of. So that's why it's such a complicated uh, set of, of, of identifiers to tell whether something is genocide or not. If you could, I wanted to talk briefly here about Hamas. Uh, I think the consensus, is, as I can see it, uh, across the board is that atrocities were committed on October 7th, uh, with the question of was Hamas uh, or is Hamas's intent genocide? What are your views on that? Because I know a lot of people will bring up, I believe it was the 1988 charter, but then there was a later charter uh, that right. really moderated a lot. So uh, can you put that all in context? Right. So so interestingly, Hamas uh, comes into being uh basically um, as a branch of the Islamic Brotherhood from Egypt. And it's originally uh, a very moderate group uh, that is interested more in social services in Gaza. And the Israeli authorities at the time in Gaza prefer to work with Hamas rather than with Fatah, which is the fighting, the, the, the armed branch of the PLO, because Fatah is engaged in armed resistance and Hamas is not. Hamas becomes radicalized uh, during the first and second intifadas. Um, so in uh, 1987, 88, and then in 2000, and becomes a much more um, determined uh, fighting organization, whereas Fatah becomes really 
part of the Palestinian Authority and is now seen often as really collaborating with the Israelis in controlling the West Bank. In 1988, Hamas uh, publishes its uh, sort of founding resolution, which is a very curious document. It's uh, it's 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 deeply anti-Semitic. It lifts all kinds it, it of things. It makes references from, from the Protocols of Zion and yeah, whatnot. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely it's a, it's a, it's a crazy document. I mean, it blames the Jews for the the outbreak of World War One and all kinds of very strange things that really come from the Protocols of the Elders of Zion and other anti-Semitic text, and it talks about the destruction of the state of Israel and replacing it by a uh, an, an Islamic Palestinian entity. Now, it's true that in 2017, uh, Hamas issues another statement, which is much more moderate, which was done really in order to be able to work together with the Palestinian Authority, uh, with the PLO. Uh, but it it never um, did away with the original statement, and it doesn't really call the second one as anything binding. Uh, so one can refer to the first, one can refer to the second. It's you know it's a little ambiguous. I the sense is also from interviews given by Hamas leaders since October seventh. People like um, Azi Hamad, yeah, exactly. I mean that Hamas is dedicated to uh, killing as many uh, Israelis as it can and would like to do away with the state of Israel. Whether you call that uh, genocide or not, that depends a little bit in the eyes of the beholder. Uh, There are many um, uh, right-wing people in the Israeli government who would like to do away with Palestinians, maybe not kill them, but at least remove them from what they see as the land of Israel. And in that sense, Hamas and the radical right wing right now in Netanyahu's cabinet are mirror images of each other. I would not choose one over the other. I think that I've I've heard a lot of people say that, that there is sort of a mirror image thing going on between Hamas on one end and the Netanyahu or Likud party government on the other end. Uh, one thing I wanted to discuss with you was uh, you mentioned this issue of context in regards to October 7th and sort of acknowledging that the Israel-Palestine issue doesn't begin on October 7th. One thing that I've noticed when people point that out is that they get accused of, uh, quote-unquote, contextualizing brutality. And I I don't know how to respond to that, because I feel like uh, if you're a historian, you have to take in all that history. So could you speak to that issue of having to understand the context? Yes, of course. I mean, uh, certainly as a historian, if you, if if you are trying to understand a particular historical event, you want to know what are its roots, what are its immediate causes, what are its deeper roots. This is what Thucydides already wrote, you know, uh, in the in the fifth century BC or fourth century BC. So, yes, you need to know, uh, you need to understand the historical context. And here, the historical context which does not condone in any way the particular atrocities carrying, carried out by Hamas, is that Israel has, uh, in 1948, with the establishment of the State of Israel and the war over that territory, uh, Israel expelled 750,000 Palestinians or intimidated them into fleeing uh, during the war and never allowed them back. Uh, which for Palestinians is called the Nakba, the the disaster. Uh, In 1967, Israel then occupied other parts of what was mandatory Palestine, meaning the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. And it has occupied those territories for the last 56 years. Uh, And so we are talking about a territory uh, under Israeli control of one kind of of another, which right now has 7 million Jews and 7 million Palestinians. Uh, Two of those 7 million Palestinians are Israeli citizens. All Palestinians, including those who are Israeli citizens, have fewer rights than the Jews in that country, and those who are occupied have very few rights in general. And so the context is that Israeli governments over decades have refused to come to any kind of political resolution of this issue of two peoples living on one land. How do they share that land without one 
group oppressing the other. Um, th that's the general context. Now, the Palestinians have not been blessed with particularly good political leadership. Uh, and the Israelis for a long time have had a very intransigent political leadership um, to the extent that, as we know, and in fact, the Israeli press is full of that. And Netanyahu, for the last 20 years, kept Hamas strong because for him, having a strong Hamas was the best argument against any political resolution, against giving up any territory by saying, we can't talk with these people. They are totally fanatic. Uh, now, Hamas grows, and all extremists grow, uh, when there, there are conditions of uh, despair, of hopelessness. And if you keep people, as Israel's kept people in the Gaza Strip for 16 years, under conditions of siege, without any hope, uh, in really difficult conditions, very heavy unemployment, you can expect that they will support the most extreme elements that they can, and we be brutalized by that kind, by these kind of conditions. I think you've commented on this elsewhere, uh, but I wanted you to elaborate on it. I think you've said, I think it was with Professor James Dorsey, uh, that in, in a way, occupations have a tendency to brutalize both the occupied and the occupier. So how does it sort of affect both parties? Yeah, and I'm not inventing anything. This is something that was said, you know, about uh, colonialism uh, by some of its most um, acute observers. Um, look, I mean, I'll just uh, tell you this. I mean, uh, young Israelis who joined the army, um, if they're in infantry, uh, much of what they do is not engaging fighting. What they engage in is policing and they police the West Bank. Uh, and what does it mean to police the West Bank? They stand in roadblocks, in, in checkposts. They break into homes at four in the morning to look for suspicious elements. Uh, and in the process of doing that, they humiliate people, they, they enrage people, uh, and they themselves are brutalized by behaving toward another group uh, in ways that they would never uh, engage in uh, against the, their own citizens. Uh, so there is a process whereby the population that you are oppressing becomes increasingly angry at you and willing to do anything against you, and where you, by constantly putting them down, constantly humiliating them, are yourself brutalized. Uh, and I think that, you know, we saw this both with the Hamas attack, which was really uh, somewhat extraordinarily brutal. And we saw that then in all the statements being put out by political leaders in Israel saying these are human animals. Uh, when you talk about people as animals or as cockroaches or as vermin or whatever various genocidal regimes have used, then you're already giving license to your own people to treat them as non-humans and not to care about them uh, as human beings, even if they are your enemy. Uh, and so this is a process that has to lead to um, brutalization. It also corrupts. And, you know, when I was a teenager, we, we used to um, protest the occupation. This is in the early 1970s. Uh, and uh, we would say occupation corrupts, occupation corrupts. And that's what it did. It corrupted the state of Israel. It put in place a corrupt uh, Palestinian authority. And I think it has corrupted also organizations such as Hamas, which have become sort of married to a religion of violence and, and murder. And all of this is a result of this larger context. It's only by changing the context that you can put an end to the violence. I just had a few more things I wanted to ask you if you have a little bit of extra time. You recently signed an open letter on the misuse of Holocaust memory. Uh, others signed this as well, including uh, Christopher Browning, who's very respected in Holocaust studies, Jane Kaplan and others. Uh, could you talk about what that letter was trying to get across and why you felt the need to sign it? I think uh, many of us felt that there was an abuse of the term uh, Holocaust, an abuse of uh, fears of anti-Semitism. 
Now, the Holocaust is a historical event and a, and a, a, a horrendous genocide, and one should remember it uh, and commemorate it, but one should not abuse its memory. At the, at the end of the Holocaust, uh, what people said but didn't keep was never again. And when they said never again, they, they didn't mean never again what happened because that already happened. They meant never again events such as that. Uh, not necessarily a genocide of the Jews, but genocide in general. Uh, and nowadays, especially the Israeli government, but not only, uh, are using the term Holocaust and terms such as anti-Semitism so as to demonize anyone who criticizes them, who criticizes their policies. And when you do that, Uh, what you're doing is you're giving yourself license to do anything you like, because you say, you know, the Hamas are Nazis, what they're doing to us, they, they, they want to do another Holocaust. And therefore, we can do whatever we like to them. And you have no right to criticize us. And if you do criticize us, then you're anti-Semitic or you're supporting uh, another Holocaust. I would say that... Uh, The other term that is being abused, and that's mentioned less in this statement, is the term genocide, that everybody wants to see, um, you know, to describe themselves as victims of genocide, uh, because it appears to be the worst crime that there can be. And so th this abuse of terms, rather than helping us, A, understand reality, and B, think how to uh, change it, Uh, just obfuscates and confuses people. I also wanted to ask you, uh, I know a lot of attention has been put on Netanyahu uh, and his multiple years as, as prime minister over a course of time, but um, are there other Israeli governments that also have in the past played a role in this? So let's say first, I mean, Netanyahu, has now finally shown himself, although some of us knew it for a long time, as the as the worst prime minister in Israeli history. Uh, a complete disaster. And he, you know, he he was in charge at a moment of that disaster. Um, but it is absolutely true that he was not, you know, uh, at, at the beginning of all this. Uh, there were governments in Israel, and not only right-wing governments, but also labor governments in Israel, uh, that can be seen as historically responsible for at least what has occurred since 1967. At the end of the war of 1967, uh, there was rhetoric that said, okay, peace for land. Israel will return the occupied territories and will bargain for peace with its neighbors. Uh, and it never did, because it felt that it was strong enough not to have to do it. The main cause of the War of 73 was that Israel refused to negotiate with Egypt over the return of the Sinai Peninsula, which it eventually did return, but only after a very costly war in which quite a few of my own classmates were killed. Uh, and so... Uh, yes, there is a much longer history. Netanyahu, however, formed a cabinet with particularly extreme people. And uh, there will not be any movement politically looking to the future, uh, either with the kind of cabinet that Netanyahu formed or with Netanyahu anywhere in Israeli politics, or for that matter, with Hamas. When you say... Uh he sort of built a coalition with very extreme figures. I know that you're referring there to uh, figures like Itamar Ben-Giver and uh, Bezalel Smotrich. I'm curious, I think a lot of people understand how a group like Hamas uh, comes into power or gains sympathy amongst Palestinians at various times when there's this feeling of hopelessness. I was wondering... As someone who has lived in Israel before and as someone who has uh, really taken in and understood this conflict, on the other end of that, what is it that allows for the proliferation of characters like an Edomir Ben-Giver or on the even farthest ends, uh, you know, a mass murderer like Baruch Goldstein? How do these type of figures come into being in Israel? 
Yeah, you know, I mean, it's a good question. It and and it's not its roots are not only in Israel. I mean, some of these people like Benfield are followers of Rabbi Kahana, who came from New York. Um, um, do you know how is that formed? Uh, in part, we see these kind of radical groups everywhere. We see them in the United States. We see them in Germany, in France, in Italy, in the Netherlands, right now, uh, in Britain. So. Uh, but how do they move from the margins to central positions, to positions of power? Uh, that's a more uh, pertinent question, I would say. The 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 group that people like Smotrich and Benville come from uh, belonged originally to, and th- there is a parallel here with Hamas, which is interesting, belonged originally to a very moderate party, to the National Religious Party, which was a moderate religious party, liberal. The original uh, leader was uh, a, a, a very well-educated man who came from Germany, uh, and they were usually in coalition with labor governments. And they started going through a transformation after 1967 as part of the settler movement. And factions of them formed the Gush Emunim, the Bloc of the Faithful, who were uh, the original settlers of the West Bank. And during that period of settlement, under the influence of some particularly extreme rabbinical authorities as well, they started seeing things in... Uh, very differently. That is, they actually abandoned uh, any democratic thought, any liberal thought. They're messianic. They they believe that the land belongs only to the Jews. They believe that they're fulfilling God's commandment to uh, inherit the land. Uh, and so, uh, in, in, and they believe these people are, are, are Jewish supremacists. So they really believe in uh, the supremacy of Jewish rule and the, the Palestinians um, should go elsewhere. Uh, so this is partly, I would say, a function of circumstances. That is that there was a moment in time that, that Israel could have bargained the territories, the occupied territories. It did not. It allowed the small group to grow. It actually supported it in various ways. And that, uh, what Jews would call that golem, uh, now has overtaken its maker. Uh, and it's now a potent force in Israeli politics. Could could you uh, explain that reference for some of my listeners that may not be familiar with the story of the golem? Um, because I, I yes. think it's a story that, that can... Uh, relate to something starting out as self-defense turning into something very far from that and extreme. Yeah. Precisely, yes. So this is a kind of a Jewish myth that goes back to um, um, uh, Prague in the in the late medieval period. Uh, and the story is that the, the Jews were being persecuted and threatened. And so the rabbi of Prague uh, created a golem. What is a golem? He created a sort of human figure made of mud, and then he breathed life into it. And one of the stories is that he did it by writing the word truth uh, on the forehead of this creature. And the word truth in Hebrew is emet. Uh, and that creature became the defender of the Jews because he was a huge, powerful entity. However, it started getting out of control, uh, and it's, it, it started threatening everyone, including the Jews. And then there was no choice but to do away with it. And the rabbi uh, managed to erase the first letter uh, of the word truth on the forehead of the golem. So it turned from emet to met, from truth to death. Uh, and that was the collapse of the golem. So in Jewish myth, there is this notion of the uh, golem uh, overtaking its maker. You make something to defend you, you make some supernatural creature, and that creature may actually uh, release itself of your control and wreak destruction. Um, So that's the sort of saying, and you could apply that to what happened with the settler movement in Israel, that became increasingly radicalized, 
increasingly messianic, increasingly anti-democratic. I mean, they they don't they're not the majority, but they don't believe in majorities. They believe that they are fulfilling God's wish, uh, and that the only way to stop their rise is to erase one of the letters on their foreheads and to bring them back to reality. Before you go, because I know I've kept you a few minutes over here, um, I've had a lot of friends that I would say are on the um, progressive uh, Jewish American left and, and even the Israeli left that will say to me that, you know, everything will just get much better when Netanyahu is gone. And on a, on a level, I agree with that, but I'm not sure that Netanyahu and his downfall, which I do think at this point is inevitable, I'm not sure that that will immediately fix all the problems. I don't want to be too Pollyannish about it. Could you comment on that? What is it going to take uh, for there to be peace? Oh, it'll it'll take much more than uh, removing Netanyahu. It, it'll be a good start to get rid of him because he really corrupted the system in Israel, quite quite apart from anything else, and he's been in power for so long that he's poisoned the whole system, the police, the military, the everything, um, and, and certainly the political system. But um, first of all, the poison is still in the system. So even if he go, goes, uh, that that is not sufficient. And secondly, uh, there needs to be a new uh, political leadership in Israel. Uh, none of the present politicians, uh, even the better ones, are those who are going to move us particularly forward. Uh, so the, there is a need for um, what I've called a real change of paradigm. And it has to happen both on the Israeli side and on the Palestinian side. Uh, I think that the way to facilitate that is certainly to remove uh, Netanyahu and his goons uh, from uh, the framework and to remove Hamas as a hegemon. Uh, but that's only the beginning. You then have to facilitate the rise of a new political leadership that understands that these two groups cannot keep killing each other. Uh, they are just doomed to uh, perpetual violence and growing violence. It's it's getting worse from time to time, but it will take a long time. And one last thing that is very much needed is foreign help. Uh, Israel and the Palestinians cannot do it from the outside and without intervention from the outside, and particularly American pressure on Israel to accept the need, the necessity to compromise uh, with the Palestinians. Last thing I want to ask you, since you mentioned the settler movement, uh, how has the settler movement evolved over time? You know, I mentioned characters like Goldstein, who uh, Yitzhak Rabin, you know, referred to as uh, committing a loathsome criminal act of murder. Um, and he was a supporter of the settler movement. Um, how has this movement evolved over time, though, from that period in, say, the 90s to now? How much worse has it got? And not only that, but one thing that I've heard a lot is that there are now people that are set. It's so normalized that there are young people that are settlers that may not even realize it. They don't know where the green lines are. Has this become an issue where uh, these settlements in the West Bank have become so normalized that, you know, it's even gone beyond the issue of just dealing with violent settlers now? Yes. So it's both things. On the one hand, you're absolutely right. I mean, I remember the green line, but most people in Israel, younger people, you know, my son is in his mid thirties. He he's he's never seen the green line. Uh, he also never goes to the West Bank, however. So, uh, but but he doesn't know where the border was. Uh, so, in that sense, over time, uh, you know, people in Israel hardly even talk about the occupation. They don't use the term. They don't say West Bank. They say Judea and Samaria. Uh, so there has been a normalization uh, of that area now. It's not been entirely normalized to the extent that there, there, there is a great big wall, um, you know, a separation wall uh, that winds its way into the West Bank, but still separates both parts. So there is a sense of there being two sides to this. 
but the occupation as such has become normalized, uh, even though it's not called that anymore. The other side of it is that um, I'd say you have many people who live as settlers, what we would call settlers, who don't really think of themselves as settlers. They just went there because the government offered them cheaper housing. Uh, and housing is very expensive in Israel. And, you know, nice uh, uh, areas closer to nature, not uh, congested like Tel Aviv. Uh, and they went there and it's uh, not, a f- everything is very small in Israel. They can easily drive to work. And so you have people who don't really, we associate them with settlers, but they are there just for the comfort of it. Uh, and then you have very extreme elements, and some of those are completely out of control. The so-called uh, hillside youths, um, hooligans, uh, who are totally out of control. And those people, uh, those who are now, certainly after October 7th, are also involved in major violence against the Palestinians in the West Bank. Real quick, uh, in that in that regard, I'm also hearing that it's not just limited to Palestinians in the West Bank now. That's also, I don't know if you've read about the Armenian Christians, I guess there's conflict mm-hmm. there as well. So does this even go beyond Palestinians, the threat that set, uh, violent settlers pose? Well, for one thing, it's not only violent settlers. Uh, so there are 2 million Palestinians who are Israeli citizens. Uh, and just before this war began, uh, there was a huge rise in violence uh, in those communities among uh, Palestinians who are Israeli citizens. And the main cause of that is that the Israeli police just pushed, pulled away from those communities that wouldn't get involved. So there was a lot of gang warfare and many, many people being killed. Um, And now that this war has begun, there is huge fear among Palestinians who are citizens of a second Nakba, that they too would be pushed out. Uh, And that is expressed also in violence against them, not only by settlers, and as you refer to, also violence against Christians. Um, so there have been many, many cases, sort of uh, just really rude behavior on the streets in Jerusalem against Armenian priests, against Catholic priests. You know, it's a it's a city with many Christians, uh, and that's part of a sort of social process. I would say, in part, that the the social fabric of the country in the last few months under Netanyahu has sort of been coming apart at the seams. There is just a sense of chaos in it. Uh, And some people were hoping maybe this war is going to bring back solidarity, but it's not doing that because no one forgets uh, how Israel got to this situation in the first place, at least the immediate origins of it, which is a total, not only extremism, but also complete incompetence of their own government. I just wanted to add to that briefly. I don't know if you saw the recent interview uh, that Jonathan Pollard gave that has been making the news where, I mean, he's a very extreme character at this point that even said, you know, I would jail the um, the hostages families for protesting. I mean, it that's how far I think the far right has gotten in uh, Israel. I don't know if you want to comment on that. I've not seen that, and I'm happy I haven't, and I'm not going to look for it. Uh, yeah, there there is a lot of this kind of extremism. You know, Ben Gvir was, who has more power than Pollard, uh, was vehemently opposed to this exchange. Uh, and in a, in a, just a couple of days ago, the there was a Knesset committee meeting. Uh, in which members of his party were saying to parents of hostages, you have no monopoly over victimhood. We also had our own victims. I mean, these are really crass, brutal people who are products, to my mind, of messianism and occupation and brutalization. And they should be swept out of politics uh, with an iron broom. Uh, And it may happen. But I don't know right now. I mean, the, um, it's not clear which way Israeli society is turning. Will it turn to clean up its own act just for itself, or will it become even more authoritarian and brutal as, as Netanyahu would like it to be? Uh, Dr. Bartov, I want to thank you for coming on Parallax Views. Uh, 
Is there anything you want to say in closing? What do you hope my listeners get out of the conversation we've had here for the past uh, 45 or so minutes? I hope your listeners, if they care about this and if they care about uh, Palestinians and they care about uh, Israelis, um, do whatever they can to put pressure on the representatives, uh, to put pressure on the administration, to put pressure on Israel, to finally move to uh, seriously uh, considering a political settlement with the Palestinians. It is possible. I think a majority of people on both sides actually want it, but there has to be major pressure on the, the politicians to move in that direction. And pressure from the United States is the one thing that can bring it about. Thank you again, Dr. Omar Bartov. Thank you. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon. I cannot emphasize this enough. I only have one advertiser, the mighty Mike Swanson of Wall Street Window. Otherwise, it's you, dear listener, that helps keep this show afloat. And I could really use your monthly donation at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with the way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit it. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm... I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff is a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.